1: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
0: Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. Research on child development is tricky. First, because sometimes it's hard to know if the findings are accurate, if they're generalizable to everyone, if they're meaningful. And also because even when it is, it can get emotionally charged because it suggests that there's a best way or a better way than what you might be doing or what you thought was the best way or what you grew up with, whatever it is that can feel yucky. And it's also emotional because we're making a science out of the most or at least one of the most important relationships in our lives. And that can feel prescriptive and cold. And it even feels a little bit judgmental. And I totally get that. What I'm hoping is that when you can hear reasonable, reliable, and valid research, it can give you calm in a sea of anxiety and mixed messages. And that is what today is about. Today is just about laying out what the research really amounts to when it comes to some of these heated parenting topics like sleep training, breastfeeding, and potty training. And not from one study, but from Professor Emily Oster's really exhaustive analysis of many, many, many studies. And stick around because after, my show notes are a very practical and point by point explanation of how to potty train your toddler with the hope of making your inevitable potty training adventures a little bit easier. I'm here with Dr. Emily Oster, who is a professor of economics and author of Crib Sheet, a data driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Clearly, you have had the experience of being a new mom because what I really love is that you're normalizing the very appropriate anxiety of having a a human being in your care and growing them. It's appropriate to have a baby and be anxious a little bit, a little bit anxious about making the right decisions and kind of fixating. And then it's also really nice to have accurate and clear and concise information instead of feeling like you're getting inundated with misinformation, even if it's well-meaning. And there's also something wonderful about finding out that some of those decisions just aren't as massive as you think they are. You just need to do what feels right because it's probably okay either way. So I love that. And I think it's a a service, actually, to um, diminish some of the anxiety or to alleviate some of the anxiety, which makes parenting so much more joyful, and it's better for the kids, and it's better for the parents. So I I thank you for that book. It's well great. Thank you so
1: much. That is incredibly nice. Um, incredibly
0: nice. <laughs> I wanted to go through and kind of cut to the bottom line with a few of your favorite major convincing points on some of the topics that you address in the book, because I think for tired moms, it's so helpful. I wanted, awesome. Okay, great. So Breast versus bottle versus formula. Or just breast versus formula if that's easier. Breast versus formula.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's so much pressure about breastfeeding Mm -hmm. for women. And I think that it is like, I don't know if it's like the number one stressor. There are so many stressors, but I think it's the thing often that people think back on even. And, and you know, women have told me like, I, I think back on this now and I feel like I should have tried harder. And like, I, I'm always wondering, like, did I fail, you know, if it doesn't work for them? And, and so when I went into the data there, just to like sort of spoiler alert, the the bottom line, you know, I think that there are some real benefits to breastfeeding in terms of, you know, particularly like improved digestion in the first year. Maybe some lower risks of allergies in the first year. Um, maybe less ear infections. I think that's less compelling, but probably true. And maybe some benefits for the mom in terms of uh, reductions in breast cancer uh, later. So, like if anything, maybe the most compelling long term evidence is
0: for, for mom's health, mom.
1: right? But in the some of these claims which are made about you know breastfeeding is going to make your kids smarter or thinner or less have less disease or all these like long term benefits for your kids i just don't think that those are supported in the best data that i sort of try to go through that a lot and i think that that in some ways that's important for sort of taking down the the pressure mm-hmm. on you know it's one thing to say like yeah this is the best thing for your kid and like it might lower their risk of having some more diarrhea when they're 6 months old you know and okay that's a big benefit on the other hand, that's different from saying if you don't do this, like your kid is gonna like be like lowered you know, IQ. Right. Lower IQ and fat. Like, right. like a stupid fat kid. You know, that's like that feels much worse. You know, there are people who said, well, you know, I think, you know, I think that the evidence shows that there are all of these impacts. And you know, I think part of it is I'm I'm trying to kind of argue, like, look, it's not that you can't see a correlation between breastfeeding and IQ. You absolutely see that correlation. The issue is that I don't think that is a causal relationship. And I think the best data doesn't show that. So I have gotten a, a little bit of pushback. Um, not actually a huge amount, not, not as much as I thought that, that there would be. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that there's this attitude sometimes in the breastfeeding community that's kind of like, you know, not enough people are breastfeeding. Okay. That may or may not be true. And the way that we can get people to breastfeed is to just tell them it's the most important thing. Yes, And like promotion is the way, like, that's how we're going to do it. We're just going to keep telling people it's the most important thing until, you know, we kind of promote them into like doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the issue there is that like, actually there are a lot of people who would like to breastfeed who find it very challenging.
0: Right. And it doesn't and we're not take really into always, account their experience. Yeah.
1: And it, Exactly. And so this is sort of just like we're all we're doing is telling people it's so important. We're not helping them do it. And then later, some of them, you know, they're not going to be able to do it for reasons that we may or may not have been able to help with. But anyway, they can't do it. And then they're feeling terrible. So you're somehow like maybe a few people are being convinced by, you know, oh, by the way, this is important for, you know, like IBD when people Mm -hmm. are 40 years old. Like maybe some people for some people, that's the pivotal thing. But I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think it's, I'm not sure that promotion is kind of the, the main thing here.
0: Can you explain correlation versus causation? Cause I think that probably will sum up why a lot of the evidence is confusing for people.
1: Yeah. So I think the breastfeeding is a good example, but as you'll sort of see in the description, this comes up in all kinds of settings. So if you look At like a a most basic way we might imagine evaluating breastfeeding, you could compare kids who are breastfed to kids who are not on some outcome like IQ. And the, the issue with that comparison, at least in the U.S. in the present moment, is that breastfeeding is much more common among high education, wealthy, married women in their 30s, you know, relative to all the other groups. And those characteristics, particularly like income and and education, are associated with with better outcomes for kids, with better test scores. So it's very hard to know, is it the, you know, the fact that the moms are different or Mm -hmm. is it the breastfeeding itself that matters? And, you know, because those links between education and breastfeeding are super strong and because the links between, you know, mom's education and kids' test scores are also super strong, this isn't like some idle concern. This is probably a lot of the correlation we see is driven by Mm -hmm. by that that factor. And so we really want to sort of dive into the, like, is there a way to get at causality? And so what I I do in in the book is I sort of talk about kind of what, what kind of better evidence do we have in some of these settings. So in the example of breastfeeding, there are some studies, not a million of them, but some studies where they are really able to sort of do a much better job adjusting for differences across moms up to and including comparing like two kids who are born to the same mom. So comparing siblings Mm -hmm. and then where one of them is breastfed and one of them is not. And then you're, you're obviously like, you're confident that everything is held constant about the mom because it's the same mom. And when you do that, you see that
0: you actually don't see these kind of effects on things
1: like IQ or obesity. Those don't show up in those sibling studies.
0: And so I think that's really important for people to process when you're thinking about any, Of these data, because if you remove all of these other factors and the findings end up not being meaningful, that says a lot. So so breastfeeding versus bottle feeding is essentially slightly better for, for a few reasons, but it's not changing the game in the ways that it's been touted as changing.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: I think the most egregious thing I've read was, I think it's Dr. Sears who says... In one of his books that that Cry It Out is so dangerous for kids, and he uses the research on Romanian orphanage children who are being, you know, that have failure to yeah. thrive because they're left to cry. And that has messed with many, many, many uh, moms and dads. So I wanted to have the limited yeah. data so that I, we have.
1: Yeah. So, so when I look at sleep training, I think the first thing to say is what we actually want to do is look at data about sleep training as it is practiced by people in like the environments that we would be practicing it in. Mm -hmm. So this parallel to the Romanian orphanage is like a a really pretty bizarre in some ways, because what we're talking about is like, you know, like a few nights or even more than a few nights, but of sleep training, like where the kids are crying for, you know, even an hour or something. But like in an environment where they are loved and all of their other needs are met and, you know, they have basically like they have enough to eat and no one is abusing them and they have all kinds of other things. And so somehow that's really quite a different scenario. So then we do look, you know, you can look at that and people have done. It's actually a place unlike some other places in the book where the data is pretty good for data on pediatrics, which is. Not always amazing. So there are a bunch of randomized trials where, you know, they randomize like one group of parents, encourage them to sleep train, another group of parents not. And what you see is that, you know, after sleep training, the kids sleep better. Their parents actually report that they're happier. Although I think that I personally they're think happier. that maybe that the parents are happier <laughs> right. exactly. There are actually quite good impacts on parental, on like maternal depression and parental marital satisfaction because they're sleeping. And then when you look at the kids, you know, like at the ages of five or six and you ask the questions like, do they have more behavior problems or are they less attached? And there's just no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they look, you know, happier right after the sleep training and they they look the same at six. And so in some sense, what that says is like, well, you know, even if you don't sleep train your kid, they're probably going to look the same at at six. But, you know, if you if you think this is something that would help you sleep and if you, you know, there is there is nothing in the data that would suggest that it isn't okay.
0: Mm-hmm. To do. It's the reason people, the reason children or parents think that their toddler or school aged child is having behavior problems is really because they just are tired. They're tired. I know. So, sleep position, whether you're sleeping in bed, co sleeper on the side of the bed, or in another room, you also addressed.
1: Yeah, so and here, I mean, I think this is a place where, you know, the the rhetoric is that sleep that, you know, co-sleeping is really dangerous, and you should sort of never do it, or at least that's some of the rhetoric. And, you know, I, I think this is a place where the magnitudes are pretty important. And so what I do is actually talk about, you know, what is the size of the risk. And so I think it is right, that it is somewhat risky, that there is some risk entailed in, in co-sleeping, like there is a risk of, of suffocation. That is way bigger. That risk is way, way bigger if you're if the parents are smoking or if the parents are drinking heavily or if you have a lot of covers. So there are like clearly more and less safe ways to co-sleep. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be pretty clear about that with parents. Once you are doing it as safely as possible, so nobody's drinking, nobody's smoking, you don't have any covers and like weird pillows in the bed, whatever. You know, there there is still some risk. In absolute terms, that risk is small. So, you know, probably comparable, really lower than the kind of risk of of a car you know kid dying in a car accident. And so I, you know, I, I struggle a little bit with how to express this because there I think there is this feeling like, you know, I want to always be as safe as possible and do the safest possible thing for my kid. But you know you you do want to recognize that there I think given the size of this risk, there could be factors that push you in the other. Direction, for example, if this is the only way your family can sleep, or if this is something that's really, really important to you, I can see people uh, deciding that this is that you know they're willing to accept this small risk because it, they they think it has these other benefits and because the risk is so small,
0: right? And then there's also just sleeping in the same room, which can yeah be it, the sort of happy medium to satisfy the the need sometimes to be together but not right. in the same bed. So
1: we have to kind of help people figure out what are, you know, what are the compromises that you're going to have to make. And I, I think this sort of says, for some people, that compromise may be like, you know, you're going to co-sleep for some period in, in the way that is as safe as possible. And I, I, I just, I sometimes feel like with new parents, we ask so much of them, yeah. so much more than they can do. And they end up just making choices like, okay, I'm going to go sleep on the sofa with my kid because I'm going to try to stay up, which is like far worse. Right, because they can actually fall. Because they can actually fall and you can drop them. Like there's all kinds of things. And so, I you know, I really think we we sometimes are not realistic about what's even possible for people.
0: So here's – and I don't even know why this is controversial because I have no I, – I don't um, have any hesitation about this. But can you give a little – bit about vaccines.
1: Yes. Um, so, uh, so vaccines, they're safe and effective, and you should vaccinate your kid. I, you know, I don't know what it means. <laughs> That's the bottom line. You know, I actually went through in the, in the book, I had this idea that like, you know, some of the problem we have in convincing people to vaccinate is that, is that the, the pro vaccination side sometimes just sort of sounds like, well, I told you to do it and I'm an expert and I'm wearing a white coat and like, mm-hmm. you should do it. And that we're not kind of confronting people's, um, people's fears or like really like showing them the evidence. And so that chapter is pretty long and it, it really, like I read the Institute of Medicine report on like risks of vaccines. And I really try to go through like, okay, yes, people, you know, these like long books lists on risks of vaccines, but like, let me, let me help you understand what these are. Mm -hmm. These are just like totally banishingly rare Things which definitely are not going to happen to your kid for for some reason. So so there really isn't anything to be to be worried about. You know your kid might get a fever. Like that's basically it. And you know kids get fevers and like that's we kind of know how to how to deal with that. And so so I I, I think we could do better to to try to help people understand that there really are no vaccine risks mm-hmm. or no significant ones that we should be worried about. I. Having now subsequently released the book, I uh, have realized that um, I was a naive dumb-dumb about this and that I have not made any progress on this. Um, And I probably should have just written a one-page thing that was like vaccines are safe and effective because it doesn't – this feels like a place where people are so dug in that even most people are just like vaccines are fine. Of course I'm going to do it. And then other people, people who don't believe in vaccines. You're are not, you think you're not like, convincing
0: them? <laughs> I'm not convincing them, no. I think, I them, think no. that particular chapter is incredibly helpful for the parents who know in their hearts that they should be vaccinating their kids, but they are so raw as a new parent and so terrified. And they see enough of the anti-vax people saying scary things that they just need another – they just need better evidence or clearer evidence because they're just uh, – it's just too hard for them. And then they're moved. And it, so I think that's where the – those are the people for whom that chapter is incredibly effective for what it's worth. Um, I hope so, but I'm not sure.
1: I feel like those people are like a unicorn.
0: Sorry. I guess I have a lot of – I have seen a lot of those unicorns. <laughs> but you're All right. right well, because that's good. So if it makes you feel better now, those are probably – I mean – It's a self-selecting group of probably highly educated, well-meaning but anxious parents who just need a little bit more of a push to do something they're going to do anyway but just are terrified to do. But you know what? That's a number. (laughs) But you're probably right. Somebody who thinks that everything is a conspiracy and that those studies were run by pharmaceutical companies and stuff are not probably your audience and actually probably not your audience in general or mine. Which is sad because I think it would be super helpful. And all of this really does feel like it comes without judgment. But the vaccine one is hard to do without judgment because it's, yeah. a, it's a puts other people at risk. So moms who are debating whether or not to go back to work and they decide to go back to work and need real reassurance that they're not hurting their children. I've, I've rarely talked to moms who are staying at home or working part-time that feel like they're taking away Similarly. from Similarly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think I, I, you know, I come more from that standpoint also, you know, I have a job and kids. Um, and I think that there is uh, this sort of feeling when you, when you go back to work um, whether it's pressure from yourself or pressure from, you know, other, other people, kind of like, this is not the way to be. You know, this is like, oh, don't you like love your kids and, and, you know, why don't you want to be with them? And, you know, when you look at the data, I think it is very reassuring in the sense that to the extent we have data, it really doesn't suggest that outcomes are any different for kids whose moms work versus kids whose moms stay at home. Um, you know, having a stay at home parent, like in terms of impacts on test scores or impacts on, on behavior, it just doesn't seem like, like those are the, that does not seem like the decision that is impacting those outcomes, or any outcomes that we can uh, that we can see, what I do in that chapter, though, is sort of try to point out that all of these conversations, when people are like, "I don't know if I should go back to work or not," I think the conversation is so heavily focused around the around the question of like, "What is the best for my kid?" Like, my goal is to sort of do the thing that is the best for my for my mm-hmm. kid. And in this case, data is like, actually, either of these things is fine for, right. for your kid. It's fine. Either way is fine. And so really, this conversation should be about, like, what is best for our for our family. And one piece of that should be, you know, a realistic discussion about budget and kind of how could we make it work in these different scenarios. And then the other thing is just like, what do you, what if you know, if you have the luxury to have this choice, like, what do you want to do? And so I talked to some moms about this. And I say, you know, you should ask yourself, like, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to have a job or not? And a lot of people have told me, like, oh, it never occurred to me to ask that, mm, that's... which I think is, like, so sad. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you're going to go do this thing for, like, nine hours a day, like, for whole life. And you didn't think about, like, do you, like, is this something that you want? And I think some people do want and some people don't. You know, some people would say, actually, you know, when I reflect on that, like, I would really like rather make the sort of financial sacrifices and be home with my kids. Cause like, that's the thing I would like to do. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the rest of us, like, you know, I would say this, like I, I, part of the reason I have a job is because I like it.
0: Oh my God. You know, like, I, I think, absolutely. And part of the reason that I don't want to never not work is because the stuff that I can get away with not doing as a parent right now, I would have no excuse <laughs> to get away with. <laughs> no, it's totally right. It's totally right. It's <laughs> like being the room being the room parent. And I love my work, which is a luxury, and it sounds like you do too. Maybe just quickly, I kind of loved your potty training. I loved all of it. I loved all of it. I am mesmerized by how many people want books about potty training, which I cannot fathom that you can, in good conscience, fill a whole book about potty training. And so I love a chapter about potty training. <laughs> like, no, oh, it just
1: like the single chapter on potty yes, training that and <laughs> It's
0: so useful because for the most part, I'm like, there should not be a whole book. You do not need a whole book regardless of what kind of potty training you want to do. And usually I talk about, you know, doing it more slowly or doing the rip the bandaid off and which, you know, which rewards you're comfortable with. And I can do the one where I say, I didn't say this, but use M&Ms or I can do the one that, right. you know, where I say to use stickers or no rewards because of whatever. It's a lot of that is just personal choice. But I think the, I, I love that you even addressed elimination communication <laughs> because it's such a wonky Everything. little weird uh, subset of people that often feel very strongly about using that particular mm-hmm. method. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I'm. I'll let you talk about this because you did it so well
1: yeah I mean I think with with potty training there's sort of like people again you kind of get wrapped up in the idea that like there's like a right there's like a right way to do this and I think the data shows like a, a pretty clear trade-off which is that if you try to potty train your kid like at 22 months it's going to take a pretty long time especially um, if you know, it's a boy especially if it's a boy, it's going to take a long time and, you know, you can make some progress, but it's going to be kind of like, you're going to have a long period of time where there are accidents and where, you know, the different, they don't want to do all the things. Um, if you start potty training your kid at three and a half, like they're going to get it pretty fast because a three and a half year old is really different from a two year old in terms of their ability to understand incentives. You know, your like, their kind of ability to control their body, just totally different. Their ability to sense that they're about to pee. You know, and so like, but of course, like, then you have spent an extra 18 months, like kind of changing diapers. And so the data just shows like the longer you wait, the shorter time it takes. And I think that just, that just is kind of a choice about like, what do you want to do? What do you want to try? And I think the other thing that you realize in reading this stuff is like, kids are really different. And, you know, some, the things that work for some kids just like, don't work for other kids. And some kids, you know, this becomes like really a control, like a control thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I talked some about the stool toileting refusal, which I think for me is like the one thing about parenting that I was like, like I definitely had never thought about the idea of, that people would not want to poop in the body. Like until I had kids, like that never occurred to me as a as a concern, something that would occupy my mind. And after you after you have that experience, and you mention other people, everyone's like, "Oh, of course that happened to me too." You know, right, like,
0: right, like, well, one hundred
1: percent of people
0: have this problem. because you you know I, I the only things you can control as a young child are what goes in your body and what comes out of it. <laughs> That's it. Because even yes. if somebody and puts food really in your mouth. You can't control
1: pee because basically eventually, you know, the pee is going to kind of come right, out. Right,
0: right. You, you know, hold. and it's just
1: coming out. The poop, you can you can hold that. Yeah. You can do that. You can hold it. <laughs> and uh, And, you know, one of my kids had this problem for a pretty long time. I'm and sorry. it was really like, became like a real sort of like power struggle, basically. Mm-hmm. We couldn't make progress with them. And it was
0: really frustrating. So now, and now they're all good with their... <laughs> they're good.
1: Yeah, my mom fixed it, actually. I think it, it became a thing where like, it, we just couldn't make any progress. Mm-hmm. And then we, we left them with my mom for, for a week. And I think she just, because it was a different person asking, she just managed to get them to say something that, that would help. And then it just worked out fine because by this time, this child was quite old.
0: Right. And you were right. And this particular child didn't have to, you know, argue with you.
1: Right. Exactly. It was like, that. you know, they didn't it it had become a a source of conflict in a way that was just not where nobody wanted to give in.
0: So um, I really love and I think potty training is an example and solid foods is an example. But I really love how you frame a lot of the conflicting choices, not as right or wrong, but more about you know right or wrong for your particular family and your child's temperament and your particular personality and all of and parenting style and all of that and that is just a much more honest and useful way and less judgmental way for less self-judgment to make decisions so i think can you just take us through how an economist would frame a decision as subjective as some of these parenting conundrums, when they're looking at, you know, other things that aren't in your book, (laughs) how a parent might put their, a parent who is not an economist or a researcher, how, what, what they can look for to make decisions that are right for their family when they're looking at data and not directly looking at data. Because honestly, most people are looking at summaries of data. Right.
1: So I think the first thing I would say is that I think people really need to sort of think about structuring the decision before they dive into the data. So thinking about you know what are the benefits of this choice and this other choice, and you know what am I seeing as the as the trade-offs? And I think the reason that's important is is that um, that when we dive into the data, it can get kind of very easy to to just start being wrapped up in like what are the studies saying, what is that, as opposed to saying okay, what is the important information for me that I need for this decision. And then when you do go into the data you know I think there there are some things that are kind of important to look for and you think about is like is this a good study or not so um, so one piece is just like is the study random you know that's kind of your best that's your best case scenario is like a big randomized study we almost never have that mm-hmm. um, but you know w- within things that are not randomized thinking about is this study big you know is this a study of 12 people or seven hundred thousand people mm-hmm. Does it seem like the other differences across parents are likely to be important in driving the results of the study? So these are the kind of things that I would that I would look for. But it's not that easy to to do this. But those those are some of the those are some of the things I would start with.
0: So I I heard you on another interview. You said you were not planning on doing this again <laughs> for now, um, but given how difficult it is. What kind of questions do you have about your older children that might, you know, that if you were writing a book and you had the time to write the follow-up to this for school-age kids or adolescents or whatever, which you'll probably end up doing on your own either way, what, yeah. are, what are some of the big things that you've kind of thought about wanting to dive into?
1: I mean, I think the
0: the you know, the stuff
1: that occupies the most a parenting space, I think, is just this sort of socio-emotional, like, how do I kind of get my kid to be happy? And I think this is something that I I've reflected much more on as my kids have gotten older, that you know, a lot of the outcomes that we look at with little kids stuff is like, how are they doing? What are their test scores? What do they have any behavior problems? Once you have an older kid, you sort of of course you're of course you're still concerned about that stuff. But I end up worrying much more about like, are they going to be happy? Are they going to have like problems making friends? And, and so I think those are the, and those questions are hard to, those are hard, hard to get at. So I don't know. I think if I, if I do another book, which honestly may eventually happen, then I think those are, those are the hardest parts of that book. I think they're easier things. Um, they're easier things. Like what's, what kind of, school, you know, should you red your kid into school? Like things right. like that. Those are things where data, data is more of, is more helpful I think the the kind of emotional stuff is is harder and maybe there there's more value in in really even just thinking about you know how do I structure the kind of choices that I that I make in a thoughtful way.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And I I think with older kids I mean as they say the little kids exactly. stuff is little kids little problems, little problems big kids big problems. If you do decide <laughs> to write another one, or you're starting to think about anything, let me know so I can hear more about it. I definitely will. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. And now for my show notes. Emily mentioned the all too common potty training challenge of withholding poop. Since withholding poop is something a child can do to exert control, I just wanted to Take a minute to mention not to invest too much in potty training when you're getting started with your child. Because if you find yourself in a poop withholding conundrum, apart from speaking with your pediatrician, you really want to remove yourself from the investment. Just drop it for at least 14 days. Sometimes this can happen with no warning. Sometimes you know because there's been distress and tension or arguing. So if you can go into potty training, with a more neutral, less invested position, your child will feed off of that and have a more relaxed approach themselves. If there is any distress or tension related to potty training at all, drop it. Just spend two weeks not discussing it, not a single word, not an investment. If they happen to poop, that's cool. If they pee in the potty, great, you don't care. If they don't poop, that's cool, too. You just have to take a no-interest policy for their poop. And then if you need to, fake it till you make it because it can become pretty obsessive. After two weeks go by, try to stay as unattached as possible to the outcome. Try not to take it personally. Whether your child potty trains well or not does not make you a good or bad parent. It will never be relevant again. It's just a very difficult time. How to potty train a typical toddler. And keep in mind what I said before. Again, just if things aren't going well or if there's any tension, abandon the mission and start again in a couple of weeks. And remember that although the developmental task that each child is working on is the same, they're different. And so how you approach this is going to be personal, and I'm going to give you a few options. It's just important that you find the right fit for you and your child. Ideally, you want to go not by how old your child is, although it most likely will be best if it's between 22 months and three years, and girls can sometimes be ready on the earlier side and boys on the later side of that, that you really look at signs of readiness and that that's gonna be the best guide for you. And the way you do it will be more about your child's temperament and your temperament. So there are certain signs of readiness. One is your child's ability to follow simple instructions. Your child's ability to stay dry for at least two hours, and you can just kind of do a little squeeze of the diaper, they won't even know the difference, and if it feels grainy, then you know it's still dry a tendency to be dry after naps if you're doing this during nap time, although you can just wear a diaper during nap time or a pull-up during nap time because you can explain that even though you're potty training when you're awake, it's hard to pay attention when you're sleeping, especially when you're talking about two- and three-year-olds. So it's fine if this is just in case there's an accident. You won't want to use a pull-up during the day for potty training because that can give a really confusing message they won't really feel uncomfortable they need to have a curiosity about bathroom activities and potty they should be watching you they can come join you you can talk them through what's going on and this can you know start as early as you want and finally they need to have the ability to understand the bathroom and the related body parts and then once you begin whatever method you choose These are some tips that are going to just serve you and they're going to reduce the likelihood that it's going to become the battle of the wills that could end up leading to withholding. Stay calm and relaxed and patient. Try not to allow potty training to become a power struggle. I can't stress that enough. Buy a potty chair. You can buy a couple. You can buy the kind that sits on the floor. You can buy the kind that goes on the toilet. There's one I have no incentive to say brands or anything. But um, I think there's one called Potet or My Potet that you can get on Amazon. And it folds out onto the toilet to make a smaller toilet for your child. But it also can sit upright or stand rather on legs. And you can put a bag in it so that you can take it with you. Sometimes that's easier because you can move it from place to place. It's very small. Some people are grossed out by it. It's really a personal choice Teaching your child those words that you want him or her or they to use for body parts for using the toilet is really good. So try to avoid the cute nicknames for body parts and just be really straightforward. And help your child recognize when she needs to go to the bathroom. So if she's doing a little dance and you see that very often, you can say, oh, you're doing the peepee dance. Let's go try and pee-pee. And even if you're not ready to begin the potty training, you can still notice those kinds of things because kids do that. Tell your child to let you know when he needs to use the potty. So again, avoid asking. Rather, you can say, let me know when you need to use the potty. That way you're sort of saying, I'm confident that you've got this, and it still serves as a reminder. You can read books with your child you know, about potty training. Those are not evidence-based, but sometimes it's fun if they like the characters. And remember, whenever you're praising your child for going to the bathroom or any of the steps involved, be really specific. It's a process, not the outcome that you're going to want to focus on. So if what you're praising is that they peed in the potty, then you can be explicit. You pee-peed in the potty. But if what you're praising is you let me know that you needed to pee, then that's what you say. So you really want to be specific. Kids know to repeat behaviors when they're told specifically what behaviors you liked. And then give your child up to five minutes, I would say, on the potty before suggesting, you know, maybe we try again another time. That way you don't end up sitting there for 30 minutes every time and just having long chats in the bathroom. What happens all the time is that kids try and try And then they have an accident right after you took them to the bathroom. And we can tend to get really frustrated. Like, what happened? I I just took you or I just asked you if if you had to go to the bathroom. Again, try to not make it personal and remove yourself from the attachment of all of that. And just clean them up, move on. As we touched on with Emily, each plan should lead to pretty much the same results. It's just a matter of how long you want the process to take and what approach seems good for you and for your child. So just pick one. Here are the typical approaches. On his or her own time, that approach kind of allows your child to warm up to the idea. They can play with the potty. They can watch you model going to the bathroom, siblings, cousins, friends going to the bathroom. You leave it open and then look for signs of their readiness. You can have organized practice, which is a little bit more structured, and your child is, you know, you ask your child, you let your, your child follow the routine of, you know, sitting on the toilet after you, go to the, after you wake up from sleep, um, after a meal, or whenever a parent sees a cue, oh, let's go to the potty so you can try pee-pee and get them there immediately, there's also the one-shot method, and that's really parents who kind of know that their kids are really good at following directions, really like to get stuff done, and it usually works much more, more easily with the kids who are on the earlier side of wanting to potty train. And you have to be ready to commit to staying home pretty much for three or four straight days, and it's just really intensive, and you need to be really focused and it includes a lot of supervision. And there's the reward system, which you can use for any of these. In a reward system, parents basically motivate children with small tokens immediately after they've had a success. And as I go through the different kinds of ways of doing this, a success is just whatever you define a success as. So if a success to you is just letting you know that they needed to use the potty, they might earn the sticker, but it also might just be They can only get a sticker until they actually go to the potty. I need to say a quick caveat about rewards because it's kind of important to keep in mind. Rewards are controversial because if you give a reward for every positive behavior, you're going to get a rewards junkie or a praise junkie if you're complimenting a kid after they do anything well or to your liking. And so that can get a little intense. The other problem with it is that it can breed kind of a sense of needing external motivation versus internal motivation. So you want to avoid giving stickers, praise, rewards for things that you want your child to be intrinsically motivated to do. So that's like morals, values, feelings, kindness, things that are going to matter when they're 20. Peeing in the potty and needing to get a token... Will that matter when they're twenty? I say it will not, and so that's a good way to figure out if you're comfortable with a reward system. And you do want to try to avoid using food as a reward. And full disclosure, I would say half my clients, probably more, do do a you know like a little M M&M and M or something, but they just don't tell me. Anyway. The reward is whatever little thing that you can choose. Big rewards don't really matter or make much sense, even if it feels like they were desperate to go to Disneyland or they really wanted a big, giant truck. A long-term reward is not going to be useful at this age. So you really want immediate, consistent opportunities to give rewards. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through the slower version of potty training first and then the rip the Band-Aid off version. And I'm going to use rewards – for both of these because it's just easier and faster, sometimes praise is enough of a reward. Praise is very specific. It needs to be close to your child with some kind of touch, like a high five, a a kiss, a hug, whatever they like, but some kind of acknowledgement physically and with your voice and words that what they did and very specifically the exact thing they did was awesome and to your liking. Again, this is just for potty training. I wouldn't want you to do this all the time because you don't want to have them just try to please you all the time. So this part, the slower version, is basically behavior shaping. And it means that you take the big behavior goal of peeing in the potty or pooping in the potty, and you break it up into smaller, more manageable steps. And for each step you accomplish, you get a reward. And once you've done that for five straight days, then you take on a bigger challenge. So, for example, the first challenge might be, you know what? Every time you tell me that you have to use the potty, you get a sticker. And that's it. Now you want to practice twice a day so that your child has an experience of success and knows and is motivated to have more of it. And So you would say, okay, now's your chance to get a sticker for your potty chart or for, you know, whatever, wherever you're putting these stickers. Okay, let me know that you have to go pee-pee. And remember, it's just practice. So then they tell you, and then you say, you did it. You let me know you had to go potty. Here's your sticker. Now, you're going to also do that throughout the day. Every time they tell you, even if they're doing it just to get a sticker, just give them the reward and then after again, about five days where you're getting around 85% compliance, go ahead and move on and say, you know what, you did that so well. Now, you know, you can make up a a, a harder challenge, which would be like when you tell me that you have to go potty and you walk to the potty, you get a sticker. And then Once they've done that for five straight days really well, you're going to move on to upping the ante a little more. You might say the next one is when you can tell me that you have to go potty, walk over to the potty and sit on it. You get a reward. And then the next one would be after five days of success there, you're going to sit on the potty and take off your diaper and then... By then, you've now gotten to the point where you can say that they get a sticker for going potty. And so you can break down how you do that in any way you want. But those are just some recommendations. Now, the faster way to do this is to know that, you know, all the signs are there. Your child feels ready. And then about the day before, you say, maybe a couple days before, you can say, I think it seems like you're ready to wear big girl underwear. And- Let's pick out some really fun big girl underwear or big boy underwear and go look at some pictures. You can think about great underwear that has characters that they love. You want to get at least 10 dry pairs of underwear ready for each day of the training. Then you're going to decide on extra incentives. So what reward? And you'll say, okay, every time you go pee-pee or poo-poo in the potty, you're going to get fill-in-the-blank. The sticker whatever it is, then you want to buy or make extra drinks that taste a little bit better than what you normally give them. So let's say you only give your child water and some kind of milk. Well, now you might do some watered down juice, some smoothies, etc. So you want to have them drink a lot because if they have more opportunities to pee, then they have more opportunities to do well and to feel what that's like or to have accidents and to feel what that's like. Then you have the potty seats out, you'll tell them where they're gonna go when they have to go potty. And if they're not, you know, the first day you might even wanna bring one of those Porto potties into every room that you're in. And definitely don't watch movies or television because it's really hard for kids to pay attention to anything about their bodies when they're kind of zoned out. And you know, you'll say the night before, like tomorrow's the day. And again, if they seem stressed about it, just Let go. Just say, oh, we don't have to do it, and then do the slower version. But if they're excited about it, you can say, we're going to throw away the diapers, and from now on, you're going to get big girl underwear or big boy underwear. And keep in mind that the first day or two, you might just say it's naked, you know, we're naked on the bottom day because it takes so long to take your underwear off. Totally up to you. Then, again, tell your child each time they know they have to go potty, Let you know if they start to go pee or even poop, remain super calm, pick their body up and place it onto the toilet and just say, oh, you're peeing. And they still get the reward because they got to the potty. If they made a mistake and you didn't get to them, just remind them, oh, okay, let's clean that up and I know you'll do better next time. We're new at this. You know, what you practice gets stronger and so on. So keep it super calm and remind her the different underwear and get more excited about it this is you know the next day do the same thing and show all the rewards so if you're collecting stickers you can look at them if you're giving an m&m against what i said then you know he'll probably remember she'll probably remember and then Keep on being really positive. I caution you not to be too enthusiastic because for some kids, it totally, you know, makes them recoil. So know your child, know your personality. But when they have dry underwear, say, you are doing so well keeping your underwear dry. And so you're also praising them. And then remind them, you know, not all the time, but every hour and a half, you can say, Remember to let mommy know when you have to go potty or to let daddy know or to let caregiver know when you have to use the potty. Constant asking is going to make you kind of feel controlling and nagging and that you don't trust them. So you really want to fight that urge, even though it's pretty easy to feel that way. And keep praising your child for the things they're getting right. So even when they're blowing it, find the things they're doing right in potty training, anything at all, any small part of it to praise very specifically. And really, you have to be able to help them take a break from what they're doing so that they don't feel so invested in the game or activity that they don't want to tell you that they have to go to the bathroom. And if they do have an accident, just scoop them up, help them get cleaned up, And never say anything negative like pee you or ugh or screaming. You know, it's hard if you see a child pooping on your floor not to scream, but you just want to remain calm because if they begin to perceive even the slightest bit that you are frustrated or disappointed, there's just really no incentive to want to do it. Um, It can feel really bad. Once you've done this for a few days and you're ready to leave the house, I mean, you can leave the house when they've just peed, but you want to be back in, you know, half an hour. Just make it a house rule, like we all sit on the toilet and, you know, maybe you turn the water on for a second to inspire pee, but we all give it a try. They don't have to, but they do need to try. If you feel like you're going to have a battle, just abandon and do the slower version. Good luck, and please join me next week when my guest and old, old childhood friend, Rachel Simmons, who happens to be a best-selling author of Odd Girl Out, Curse of the Good Girl, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Happy and Healthy, Fulfilling Lives. And please remember to ask me any questions or give me feedback how you felt about the structure or the tone of this podcast. On Instagram, you can DM me at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And I look forward to hearing from you.